Please open your Bible up to Ephesians chapter 4. Our text this morning is Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. If you were with us three or four weeks ago when we began Ephesians chapter 4, you may recall that I suggested uh, our, or, our membership vows as members of Wiser Lake Chapel when we were asked if we will seek the peace and purity of our church is sort of an organizing uh, structure that, that draws on Paul's passage here. And we've looked at for the last three uh, passages in Ephesians chapter 4 how we seek the peace of the church, the unity of the church. I've argued that Paul, or following Paul, who has argued uh, that the unity of the church is essential to its peace, that unity is a unity of diverse gifts that are used together as we grow in maturity. Well, now in Ephesians 4.17, Paul is going to echo the same language of 4.1. In 4.1, he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In the same way, in 4.17, he says, I, I, I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So he's using this same language of walking to clue us in that he's, he's changing topics, that his focus is no longer uh, on the peace of the church, but now on its purity. And really this idea of, of what it looks like to live purely or to walk in the way we ought to occupies Paul for the rest of the book of Ephesians. We're just going to start with seven verses, though. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, or learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you've ever tried uh, changing a habit or a behavior, you know how hard it is. Last week I used the illustration of diets and exercise, and if you tried to get in a new exercise routine, or stick to a diet. You know it goes well for the first week or two when you're excited, uh, and then you feel, well, I'm really doing quite well, aren't I? I deserve a treat. And then you're right back into eating junk food, Doritos or whatever your uh, junk food is. That, uh, that's my, my weakness. But uh, you know it's hard to make lasting changes to our behavior. In fact, this is what makes some of the top athletes so impressive. I'm not a golfer, but my understanding, and, and Chris can correct me later, my understanding is that Tiger Woods is generally regarded as the second best golfer of all time. And one of the remarkable things about Tiger Woods uh, is that he reinvented his swing three or four different times during his golf career. Uh, again, I'm not a golfer, but my understanding is that this is a long process of unlearning muscle memory, relearning a new way to swing. 
And yet Tiger Woods' own life illustrates that as difficult as that might be, making permanent changes to our behavior in our personal life is even more difficult. Uh, his widely publicized uh, uh, scandal in 2010, a series of infidelities came to light. He lost his marriage, uh, his family, a lot of money in a divorce. Um, and and he, he recognized ultimately that changing his behavior in his personal life was even more difficult than changing his golf swing. But that's what Paul calls us to this morning. Deep, lasting, permanent change of our behavior. He says, walk no longer as the Gentiles do. Back in 2.11, he actually already instructed the, the, the Ephesians, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh were at one time separated from Christ. So the Ephesians are to remember that they are Gentiles. They don't need to become Jews. They don't need to follow the Jewish dietary laws and circumcision laws. They remain Gentiles. Yet nevertheless, there are Gentile or, or, or pagan ways of living that the Ephesian Christians must no longer follow. They must make a decisive change. And so in this passage before us, Paul sets out a fundamental contrast of two ways of living. There's a right and a wrong way to live a truly human life. There's the way of walking that these Gentiles practice, which ultimately leads nowhere. And there's another way of living that ultimately leads to being recreated after God's own plan. There's a fundamental contrast. This contrast begins in our minds. And so the first truth of this passage set before us is that rebellion clouds our minds. Rebellion clouds our minds. In verse 17, uh, Paul describes this way that the Ephesians must no longer walk in, the way of the Gentiles, as futility of their minds. Uh, futility, aimlessness, uh, purposelessness. It's sort of wandering about. They have no goal in mind in the way that they walk and live. Then in verses 18 and 19, Paul continues with seven different descriptions of this way of living. They are alienated in their understand or darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We pay attention to the little conjunctions Paul uses here because, due to, we see that there's a downward spiral here. It paints a picture that begins with a rejection of God's truth. Because their hearts are hard, they are ignorant. And then because they are ignorant, their understanding is darkened. And they are separated from God's own life. They become callous over time. And so they give themselves up to living without restraint, greedy for impurity. Their desires are fundamentally disordered. Not a path that we want to walk on. And yet we know it's true. Aimless living, uh, just sort of wandering about without a purpose, can lead over time to becoming calloused and hardened and giving ourselves up to all sorts of uh, wanton living, living without restraint, that we recognize ultimately 
is unhealthy. Jesus teaches the same thing in Mark chapter 7. He has a debate with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are saying, how come your disciples are eating without washing their hands? Doesn't that make them unclean or impure? And Jesus responds, no, not at all. Rather, it's not what we eat, what goes into us that makes us impure, but it's what comes out from us. He says in Mark 7, from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, er, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus, too, recognizes that fundamentally it's, our, it's not just our behavior that uh, needs corrected, but it's our minds. The minds and hearts that lead to that behavior is where the problem is. Going back for a minute to Tiger Woods, it's interesting, shortly before his divorce, he gave a um, press conference and he made these comments. He recognized the same truth learned the hard way. He says, I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules didn't apply. He convinced himself normal rules didn't apply. I never thought about who I was hurting. Instead, I thought only about myself. I ran straight through the boundaries a married couple should live by. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to do. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled but I was wrong and I was foolish. He's almost paraphrasing for us the process Paul describes here. That it begins by convincing yourself normal rules, God's law, don't apply to you. And then you don't think about others. You become increasingly focused on yourself. And then you start breaking God's commands. You think you can get away with things. You think you, in fact, deserve them. And yet, although you feel entitled, you are ultimately living a foolish and wrong way. Paul paints a stark contrast here between the way Christians are called to walk and the way that non-Christians walk. And yet perhaps you are thinking, this seems a bit unfair to draw this stark of a contrast. Is it really fair to say that the, the non-Christian way of living is part of this downward spiral that ends in, in wantonness and recklessness? And perhaps you're even asking, is it even true? After all, you probably know non-Christians who are more decent people than many of the Christians you know. And so is it even true, these two contrasts? Well, this raises an important question that we should wrestle with for a moment. And I want to respond at three levels. The personal, the historic, and the ultimate. First, at the personal level, none of us live perfectly consistently with our principles. That's Paul's whole point in this passage, that Christians are called to live the new life, and yet he's telling them, don't walk that way anymore. He's saying you have these principles of a way you're meant to live, a Christ-like life, and yet you're doing these various things that are inconsistent with it. And on the same, uh, on the other side, uh, by the same uh, principle, no non-Christian is entirely as uh, wicked as they should be given their principles, given their commitment uh, to rejecting God's law. Moreover, we are all, Christian and non-Christian alike, kept from acting as wickedly and selfishly as we might. God restrains us. This is called common grace. 
and all humans experience God's common grace restraining us. Second, at a historical level, common grace, together with the the call that Christ gives his followers to be lights shed in darkness and salt that preserves uh, meat from decaying, so Christians and Christianity has shed light into the darkness of the world and has been like salt preserving the world. Of course, the church and Christianity has all sorts of faults as well. It's not to say that the church is perfect. Yet nevertheless, we uh, living in an era where universal human rights are generally recognized can forget to what a great extent those are due to the broad Christian influence on the world over the last 2,000 years. Let me take one example. The Christian attitude towards children contrasted with the pagan attitude of Paul's day. Now, we just generally assume, of course, children have human rights, and it's, you know, UN Declaration of Universal Human Rights that apply to children. And yet, in Paul's day, exposing unwanted infants was generally accepted practice. And it wasn't just something that many people did. The great thinkers of the ancient world, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Paul's contemporary, all defend exposure as a way of regulating population of cities and states. And yet the early church equated, within the first century in the Didache, uh, early first century document, equates exposing infants and abortion with murder. So right from the start, even from the, from the, from the most helpless infant, there's a distinct uh, contrast between the way non-Christians and Christians think about children. And then moving on into childhood, um, about a quarter of girls in the pagan world would have married before, at or before age 12. Uh, and yet it was three times less likely for Christian girls to marry that young. In fact, about half of Christian girls didn't marry until 18 or older. Today, in our world, Christians and non-Christians alike abhor things like infanticide and the sexualization of children. But that is due to 2,000 years of Christian influence. It's not simply a given. The pagan world taught otherwise. At a personal level, God restrains us from being as wicked as we might. At a historical level, God uses the church to restrain the world from being as wicked as it might. But we must respond to this question at an ultimate level as well. As I read this passage, uh, Ephesians uh, 4, 17 through 19, it may have reminded you of Romans chapter 1. Paul uses very similar language in Romans 1 to describe a similar downward spiral into sin. And yet in Romans 1, it ends with God handing unbelievers over to their disordered passions. But here in Ephesians 4, the Gentiles hand themselves over to pursuing debauchery and impurity. Uh, What Paul teaches in these two passages are complementary. It's simultaneously true that God's ultimate judgment is handing people over to reckless living, and yet it's also true that people hand themselves over to reckless living. That is to say, God's final judgment is to remove his common grace and to let people live as selfishly as they want to. And it's not a pretty scene. What hope, then, do we have if our rebellion and our rejection of God clouds our minds 
and it warps our desires, what hope do we have? If our very desires are disordered, how can we desire to be made right? If our minds are twisted, can we think our way out of this problem? Well, the answer is not in ourselves whatsoever. The answer is the second truth Paul sets before us. Christ clears our minds. Rebellion clouds our minds, but Christ clears our minds. In verse 19, Paul reaches the the bottom of this downward spiral into the pit. They are greedy for practice of every kind of impurity. And then the announcement of good news in verse 20. But that is, not, uh, that is not the way you learned Christ. But that is not the way you learned Christ. In verses 20 and 21, Paul sets before our eyes a threefold school of Christ. Note the language uh, from the schoolhouse that Paul uses here. We learn Christ, we hear him, and we are taught in him. We learn Christ. What sort of Christ do we learn? We don't just learn about him. We learn him himself. And what sort of Christ is this? It is the word become incarnate for our sake. It is a man who lived a perfectly righteous life, who was crucified and yet rose again and is ascended as our king. We learn Christ's person, that he is God and man. We learn his work, that he is crucified and risen again. And we learn that as a risen king, he makes demands on our life. We learn Christ. We learn what he has done for us and what he requires of us. We must, too, live Christ-like lives. We don't just learn Christ. We hear Christ. That is to say, Christ is our lesson in the schoolhouse, and Christ is also our teacher. English translations smooth out uh, the language here by saying we heard about Christ or something similar. And yet in Paul's uh, Greek, there's no preposition. It simply says we have heard Christ. We hear Christ himself speak through his scripture and through the preaching of his word. And so the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 155 asks, how is the word, how is scripture made effective for salvation? Answer, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effective means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them to Christ, of conforming them to His image and subduing them to His will. By by God's Spirit, the reading and preaching of God's Word, we hear Christ's own voice. We hear Christ's own voice. And third, we are taught in Christ. Christ is our lesson, Christ is our teacher, and Christ is also our classroom. We can't stand back at a distance and evaluate Christ uh, abstractly and then make some kind of a decision whether we're going to follow him or not. No, we learn Christ in Christ, in fellowship with other believers, in the midst of the church, in relationship with Christ Jesus himself. And so the threefold school of Christ, he is our lesson, our teacher, and our classroom. And this is how it must be, for in verse 20, Paul ends, the truth is in Jesus. 
The truth is in Jesus. If we want to learn the truth, it's not a set of abstract principles, but it is a person. Notice the shift in Paul's language there from Christ, referring to his office as Messiah, to Jesus, his personal name as a human being. That is to say, the truth is not somehow hidden off somewhere else. But the, very tr- the truth is revealed in the very human life that Christ, that Jesus lived on earth, that his disciples saw and were witnesses to. The human life that we read about in the Gospels, as we read from Mark chapter 8 this morning. That life that we see in the Gospels, that is the truth. It shows us what our King is like and what he demands of us. There's not some hidden Christ off behind the incarnate man, Jesus. That's where we look to see what God is like. Well, what happens in the schoolhouse of Christ? When Christ is our catechism, what happens? The third truth in our passage is that God renews our minds. God renews our minds. He works deep, lasting, permanent change in our minds and our hearts that over time, not immediately, but over time works itself out in lasting change in our behavior as well. Our minds and hearts are clouded by rebellion, and so it's our minds and hearts that need changed, that need renewed. Oh, you can learn all sorts of good behaviors. You can be moderate in your consumption of alcohol. You can never lose your temper. You can be kind to all those around you, and yet if you miss God you're still not doing it with the right aim in mind. Even your good work can be futile, can be aimless. It's got to start in the heart and in the mind and then work itself out in our lives if it's going to be deep and lasting change for God's glory. Paul makes this point by developing uh, an extended image of changing our clothes, taking a bath, and putting on new clothes. I don't know if I'm alone or if others of you had the same experience this last year, thinking last spring uh, during the height of the lockdown, working from home, and you can go three or four days and realize I've been wearing the same stained t-shirt and dirty sweats for three or four days, and I haven't shaved for three or four weeks, and it's, okay, it's time to clean up and get dressed uh, just to feel human again. I need to look presentable even if I can't go out. Uh, Maybe I'm alone on that, but Paul's saying the same thing. Quit walking around in dirty, uh, the language he uses here of uh, corrupt, uh, corrupt manner of life. It's literally, it's like rotting. Like your clothes have got holes coming through it, sweat stains, it's falling apart, it's threadbare. My kids know which one of my t-shirts I'm describing. But they're saying, get rid of that shirt and put on your new clothes. Look presentable. J.B. Phillips, uh, maybe you've read his uh, translation of the New Testament from maybe the 40s and 50s. Uh, it's, a, it's a great translation. He says, he translates this passage this way. No, what you have learned was to fling off the dirty clothes of the old way of living, which were rotted through and through with lust's illusions, and with yourselves mentally and spiritually remade, to put on the clean, fresh clothes of the new life, which was made by God's design for righteousness and holiness. Fling off the old clothes that are falling apart. Put on the new clothes. And yet that's not quite accurate to Paul's language. Paul's language here, he he uses for the taking off and putting on past tense verbs to refer to a completed action. If you have learned Christ, 
if you are in Christ, this has already been done. The old has been taken off and the new has been put on. It's not just uh, uh, clothes that have to be taken off, though. It's the very, our very selves. Maybe kids remember in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, remember when Edmund turns into a dragon and he's got the bracelet around his arm and to turn back into a human, he's got to claw off the dragon skin, right? And that's what, what Paul's saying. That's what happened here is your old self has to be clawed off. Your very self, your very person has to be torn off. It's taken away because our old self is ruined. It's rotting because of sinful desires. But no more. It's past tense. It's been put away. That old t-shirt, it's taken off. It's thrown. It's cut up for rags. It's in the rag drawer. You use it to change oil. It's not wearable anymore. It's gone. Okay? It's done. Likewise, the putting on the new self is done. We call uh, becoming a Christian, following Christ, from our point of view, converting. But from God's point of view, it's a recreation. He has recreated those who have learned Christ according to his own purposes. All humans are made in God's image. But when we rebel against God, we're using that image for its wrong purpose. And so instead of mirrors that accurately reflect God's own character... We're like those funhouse mirrors that you see at the fairs that make you really tall or really wide or all wonky. Okay, that's what happens when the mirror that's meant to reflect God's own image reflects ourselves instead. And yet God is recreating us according to his purposes, according to his plan that we might reflect his character rightly. It doesn't mean that we're perfect ever in this life, but it does mean that our hearts and minds are renewed and so we desire to live rightly. We desire to be holy like God is holy. Now, this morning, if you're listening and you're struggling with this and you're thinking, am I still living the old life or am I living the new life? And you're kind of on the fence and you're not quite sure. Am I walking the pagan way that I shouldn't be or am I walking the new way? And maybe you're thinking, you know, I have these ongoing sins I keep struggling with. And does that mean I'm not really a Christian? Here Paul points to how you can know. Yes, all Christians stumble and sin, but what is your fundamental desire? Do you desire to just live recklessly and not be bound by God's law? Or do you desire to live righteously? What's your desire? It's a way to test your heart. What still needs doing, though? God has recreated those who have learned Christ to have new dispositions, to have their, their affections renewed to have new desires. But that middle bit, the washing, that middle bit in verse uh, 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, Paul uses a present tense. It's an instruction. It's something we're to continually do day after day. It's an ongoing call to daily be renewed in our minds, to change our habits and behaviors in accord with our new selves. The old clothes are gone. They're cut up for rags. You have a new outfit on now, okay? You've got on your tie for church. Don't go change the oil. Don't go digging a hole like you're in your old work clothes. You've got your new clothes on, okay? So we are made new, and now we need to act accordingly. And we need to be renewed in our minds daily. How? John Stott uh, comments, good conduct arises out of good doctrine. Good conduct arises out of good, con uh, out of good doctrine. Our daily renewal is by thinking Christianly, 
about ourselves and our status. Thinking Christianly about what we need to do. This is why Paul has spent so much time in the first part of Ephesians talking about our identity in Christ, what God has already done for us. Daily, we need continuous inward renewal. Our minds need to be renewed. This means doing, uh, practicing what Martin Luther called preaching the gospel to yourself. Speaking gospel truths to, your, to ourselves when we are tempted, when we're discouraged, when we're angry, when we're uh, despairing. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or, or, yep, that's right. In the next paragraph we're going to look at next week, Paul plays this out in five or six different areas in our life. But let's just glance ahead a little bit and take one of these as an example. In verse 31, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and yelling and slander and name-calling be put away from you, along with malice or hatred. Let it all be put away from you. Notice Paul is talking to those who have been recreated in Christ, and yet they still struggle with all these things. And I suspect I'm not alone in confessing that this last year, with all of its restrictions, with a lot of time spent at home with family, has revealed to me that I have a real struggle with bitterness and anger and letting little things that someone does bother me and kind of like a little bit of grain or a little rock in your shoe and it kind of wears your foot raw and then it, and then it ends up in getting angry and then it ends up, Paul says, in yelling and getting frustrated with each other. I hope, I, I, I suspect I'm not alone in saying that that's kind of something the last year has revealed to me that still needs worked with. Okay, well, what does that work look like? What's the antidote? Paul says in the next verse, put it away. Or actually in that verse, he says, let it all be put away from you. Take it off. That's old self. That's old clothes. That's not the new person. Instead, our minds need to be renewed. And so in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In place of bitterness and anger, we practice kindness and tenderheartedness. In place of yelling, we practice forgiveness. And we do this by preaching the gospel to ourselves. Paul says, as God in Christ forgave you, we remind ourselves that God has reconciled us through the Redeemer, that we are forgiven through Christ's work. We remind ourselves how great our debt was that needed paid. We remind ourselves how great the cost of paying that debt. We remind ourselves that God gave His Son We remind ourselves that Christ gave himself on the cross. We remind ourselves of this great love and kindness and tenderheartedness of God in Christ. Okay, And in that light, when your roommate or brother or sister or spouse is annoying you, you think, okay, I can forgive that they do dishes the wrong way. I can forgive that they do this thing the wrong way, that they keep leaving their dirty clothes over here. I can forgive that they're still wearing the same t-shirt and sweats three days later. Okay, It puts things in perspective. And so that's how we daily renew our minds, is by preaching the gospel to ourselves. How can we not forgive and practice kindness when we have received this great forgiveness and kindness? Rebellion clouds our minds. It twists our desires. It puts us on a wrong path. A path that ends in reckless living and destruction. The hope, then, is that Christ clears your mind. 
That you go to the school of Christ, where you learn Christ the lesson from Christ the teacher in the Christ the schoolhouse. And in Christ the schoolhouse, God renews your mind. If you have learned Christ and you are in Christ, He is already making you are a new creation. And daily He renews your mind through prayer, through preaching the gospel to ourselves. And so I ask you this morning, friend, what is your need? Is your thinking aimless? You have no particular goal in mind and you're wandering about trying things? Do you need to learn Christ? Come then to the schoolhouse of Christ. Hear the bell ringing for the start of class. Come and learn Christ. Have your mind cleared. Have your old clothes taken off and new clothes made by God put on you. Or have you already learned Christ? Are you a new creation? Then the challenge for you today is to have your mind daily renewed. To daily remember Christ's great work for us. God's great forgiveness. To daily preach the gospel to ourselves so that we can put off wrong behavior. We can quit walking in the way of the Gentiles and walk in the way of Christ. And we'll reflect more on what that looks like concretely next week. But now let us pray. Thank you, God, that you are in the process of renewing us. That you want to recreate us so that we might accurately reflect your image and live lives that reflect your life. Lord, there are some here today who, even as they're reflecting on what their desires are, recognize that they really haven't yet learned Christ. That they really don't desire to be more Christ-like. And as they recognize this, Lord, confront them by your spirit. Let them hear Christ's own voice calling them this day to put their trust in you. There are others of us, Lord, who have been recreated, and yet we live in ways that don't fit our new nature. Uh, We're engaging in activity that doesn't fit the clothes you have put on us. Straighten us out, Lord. Correct us. Daily renew our minds. Renew our minds this day as we come to the Lord's table. Make us into, uh, teach us to better walk in the way of Christ and to follow him. Amen.